0: Teach me about the Great Lakes, teach me about the Great Lakes. Chah. Welcome back to Teach Me About the Great Lakes, a twice monthly podcast in which I, a Great Lakes novice, ask people who are smarter and harder working than I am to teach me all about the Great Lakes. My name is Stuart Carleton, and I work with Illinois Indiana Sea Grant and I'm so happy today to be joined by Reenie Miles. Reenie, how are you? I'm doing well, thank you, um, for a Tuesday, yeah. Yeah, it is a Tuesday, and it's actually supposed to warm up today. It's supposed to get in the 50s, but I have a confession to make. I I spent about half of the last episode complaining that we don't get any snow here in West Lafayette, and the reason I did that is because we don't get any snow here in West Lafayette, but like eight minutes after we stopped recording, we got a foot and a half of snow over the course of two days. So, mea culpa. Mea magna culpa on that. Either that or you're just a man of a lot with, with, with the power. Maybe so, but what a stupid way to have used it, right? There's so many things I could have done, um, but I said we got three snow days in a row, um, which was super fun, actually, super fun, but I'm still recovering. One snow day is is plenty for me. Anyway, uh, I'm really excited, though, because um, we're going to do something a little bit different. As you know, Rini, I love segments. All The whole reason we do this is so we can have segments. And uh, one day, one evening, shall we say, um, without going into all the details, I thought of a segment that we should have. Um, and and uh, that, that segment is, I realize I have a lot of occasional smart questions about the Great Lakes, but really what I have are less smart questions about the Great Lakes. And that will take us to uh, this week's, this month's, this episode's segment. And like all good segments, this one starts with a theme song. Ask a stupid question and get a smart answer. It's a great way to learn about the Great Lakes. Really excited to be joined by uh, Professor John Jansen. He's uh, the School of Freshwater Sciences at the University of Milwaukee in Wisconsin. And I realized that I have a very stupid question that I want to ask. As a way of background... Uh, you know that gobies are really huge in Eastern Europe. People love to, I mean, the gobies themselves are, you know, normal size, but people love to eat gobies in Eastern Europe. And I heard this from Hank Vanderplu, the lifetime award winner. Um, that made me super pumped. And so I've had this dream, uh, as longtime listeners know, of starting a goby dog business in the Chicagoland area, you know, like a little cart, you get your little cart, you get buns, you steam the buns, you plop a goby down in there. Put some, you know, the little pickled whatever, some celery salt, and sell them. Yeah, no mustard if it's Chicago. Yeah, yeah. And most people have hated all over my dream. For no ketchup. I need to fix that. No ketchup. Yep, no ketchup. There we go. Quinn, this is the first edit point. Go back. We do what you meant, Rini. <laughs> mustard, okay. No ketchup. Get arrested. <laughs> but so here is my question for you. So Professor John Jensen, he's a freshwater ecologist, has published a lot with his colleagues on gobies. And so I was wondering, so gobies are an invasive species, the round goby in specific, in the Great Lakes. And so here's my question for you. How many goby dogs would I have to sell in order to make a dent in the Great Lakes goby population?
1: Well, obviously just one. You didn't specify the size of the dent.
0: <laughs> Fair enough. I should have said a sizable dent or, or put some some maybe a confidence bounds on our dent. Um, do we know? Do we know? So – People love to talk about eating endangered spe- or invasive species. They also like to talk about eating endangered species, but that's a different topic. But my my deal is, I don't think there's ever been an invasive species that we've eaten our way out of. And and so you know, one makes a dent. But do we have any idea how many gobies there are in the Great Lakes at all?
1: Uh, do we have any idea how many people there are in the United States? We do a census, but we know it's I mean, it's inaccurate. Right. You know, and the same thing for they always. Say when they report the unemployment statistics, it's like there's a caveat because there's these people we aren't counting and we don't many those are. So no, we don't. And it's, it's a much harder thing to try to calculate. But if you fund me for the rest of my career, I will make the attempt. <laughs> you, can have, you can have eight cents
0: per goby dog. So uh, that'll be a significant portion of the profit. And, and that's good. <laughs> oh my God, I'll be able to
1: retire in a month.
0: I, I think so. I think so. Until the, apparently they're also loaded with uh, toxins and so heavy heavy metals or what have you. So it's kind of a eat it twice and regret it for the rest of your life deal, I think.
1: So, by the way, in, in their native land, uh, Black Sea, et cetera, that area, they'll get larger than you do in the Great Lakes. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. You might set up your business there. A, Is that
0: because they're better suited for that environment?
1: Well, that's sort of like <laughs> maybe a self-evident question. Excuse me
0: <laughs>
1: so so is it so what is
0: it that allows them to get bigger I guess that's the way to phrase it is it is it the food sources over um in the, where did you say was it the baltic I missed what you said I'm the black sorry. Sea the black Sea, the Black Sea is it the food there is more nutritious or there less competition? what is the why why do they get bigger there? do you know
1: there's something like over a thousand species of gobies it's it's a huge family it may be the and maybe the audience doesn't know what the family is, but um it's a group of species that look pretty similar extremely adaptable but most of them are marine by far and it may be just a matter of if you live in fresh water you have to pee a lot because the water is constantly soaking through your skin and so freshwater fishes pee a lot and for a fish that's um, tolerates fresh water but is mostly adapted to salt water they may be putting a lot of energy into the field. It might be as simple as that. It's a bloody good question. Uh, And I don't think anybody's toyed with that. It'd be a good idea for somebody to do that.
0: So I'm vaguely remembering, I took a um, uh, a bunch of fish like bio classes back in college and in grad school. It has something with like osmoregulation, right? So like the amount of salt um, that's in your body, is that why they pee? (laughs) Is that why freshwater fishes pee so much, especially if they come from marine environments?
1: Yeah, so osmosis refers to the movement of water, but it's driven by the the salinity of the the blood versus the the water surrounding the fish. So, and if you don't believe your blood is salty, then slice your finger and taste it. I don't think you need to do that because probably everybody's had a nosebleed or something like that. So that means the water moves. uh, If if the fish is in fresh water, the water moves in a way to dilute the salts in the fish's body. And so yeah, there's constantly soaking up water and constantly having to to pee it out. It becomes trickier if the if the um, if the water is, is seawater and it's saltier than the fish's blood. So then they have to actually export the salt well in various ways. And actually there's so like crocodile tears? I mean this this is the same tear that, that we have, but that's how they get rid of excess salt. The saltwater crocodiles, and a lot of crocodiles are saltwater, including that one in, in the Everglades.
0: I did not know that. So, so gobies and round gobies in the Great Lakes, were, they were originally a marine species or saltwater species, and they came in, I assume, on ships or something like that? Is that the deal, or round gobies a freshwater uh, freshwater species uh, naturally?
1: So now I'm, I won't know exactly the details, but the Danube, is a tributary of the Black Sea, and they do go up the Danube. But they are, well, I don't know how abundant in the Black Sea, but they're definitely as salty as it goes in the Black Sea. In the winter, apparently, and this is just a one-sentence anecdote, it gets quoted a lot in papers, probably inappropriately in papers. According to the anecdote, off Bulgaria, they winter at 50 to 60 meters depth. So we'll ask you a question. So it's winter along the shore in the Black Sea where you get the freshwater uh, inputs. The temperatures, well, it's freezing. You get ice on the fringe. Black Sea is salty, but it goes from being fresh water at the surface to salty down deep. And if the fish winter at 50 to 60 meters, can you make a guess at what temperature they're at at 50 to 60 meters?
0: Um, just above freezing would be my guess.
1: No, it's about seven or eight degrees Celsius, which is going to be so well above freezing. Yeah. It's a funny thing that I think of water temperatures in Celsius because that's how I measure it. And air temperatures in Fahrenheit because that's what comes in the weather forecast.
0: Well, and Fahrenheit, now we're, we're going way afield, but Fahrenheit is really good for human air temperatures, right? Because it's like uh, zero degrees, you're real cold, 100 degrees, you're real hot. Uh, so it really, our, our lived experience, as we like to say, is, is very suitable for the Fahrenheit. Whereas Celsius, um, zero degrees, you're real cold, 100 degrees, you're real dead. Um, and so you, you get less spread, right? Yeah. Anyway, all right, so, so we've, come, we've come far afield from goby dogs. I need to return back because I have a business plan that's due on this, and so I need to get down to the details. So uh, round gobies, they came into the Great Lakes. Are they throughout the Great Lakes? How, like, how widespread are they, do you think?
1: Well, for Ontario, Erie, Huron, and Lake Michigan, which are warm in the summer, warm enough that they can spawn, and we don't know enough about that, they're wherever it's rocky or some kind of habitat like that, they, they need some structure to, to do their spawning on, to put the eggs on. Lake Superior is colder and they're pretty much around harbors there, and I don't know the details of all that, but they're abundant in Duluth Harbor, which gets warmed by its tributary. So I'm, I'm wondering how far south, in terms
0: of, you know, beyond the Great Lakes, because I know they, they beat the barrier in the
1: Illinois River um, and And how far south have they gotten? Ooh, I I would have to look at a map. But as long as you bring up the barrier, well, here's a little story. So the first report of round gobies around Lake Michigan came from an angler, I think in November of 1993, bringing one to DNR. And I know where that location was. So we heard about that in the winter, and then we checked out the location. That spring, and then did a dive in Calumet Harbor, uh, which is a clean. It's our, it leads to Lake Calumet, so the harbor is is clean. So we went um, we went into the harbor. Um, so May 1994, and we're immediately surrounded by brown tilbies. So I think well that's the first report of them actually in Lake Michigan. They were big enough that they'd probably been there a couple of years. Had to have gone through at least a couple of rounds of, um, of spawning to get that kind of population density. But it was stunning. But I, I had worked with them with, with Dave Jude previously. Um, so Dave was the first one to report gobies in the Great Lakes uh, over north of Detroit, the St. Clair uh, River. Well, actually, he, I first heard about that. It was a meeting at the Shedd Aquarium, uh, and I think probably 1991, and we're talking about the need for doing coastal research in Lake Michigan. So he came over to the Shedd Aquarium, and Ellen Morrison was there and, and uh, a few other people. And so Dave said, we've got gobies in the, in the St. Clair River. And I said, I think this is going to be a serious invasion. Because our most serious invasions are all coastal marine species. Okay, so like the rough never turned out to be a serious invasion because it's not a coastal marine fish. And the marine thing, I think it's just a matter of the physically Lake Michigan. It's not the saltiness, it's a matter of that it's rough, it has strong currents. You know, every few years we get waves hitting, particularly Chicago, Michigan City, where are 30 feet high. Something like a rough isn't used to that, but something that lives in the Black Sea, they know how to adapt to that.
0: Because you think of, you do think of like the salinity being the dominating sort of physical, uh, you know, uh, characteristic. But what you're saying is that even for fish, even though they're underwater, the waves and the wave action and the currents and stuff uh, can really affect their, their suitability for an area. Huh, I had no idea.
1: Yeah. And somebody, I mean, okay, I dive a lot. So I know what the currents are like. And, um, I would be in the, when the waves come up, if they're not too severe, I, I would be at the beach in the summer playing with the waves. So you get that physical sense of what a, a strong wave is like. And I would surf in maybe four to five foot waves, but not in a 30 foot wave. And a 30 foot wave is offshore, it's lower down. But man, it'll tear you apart.
0: Yeah, you'll see. I'm from the Gulf South. And so before hurricanes, there'll always be people out surfing. Uh, You know, um, sometimes you're like, oh, that looks fun. Sometimes it looks like, well, you're just an idiot. (laughs) It depends on, I guess, the nature of the storm itself.
1: And those people disappear and then there's a whole new generation of fools, right? (laughs)
0: exactly so so you predicted that this would be a bad invasion i guess because it was a marine thing and and uh, you predicted it accurately i think and so what has been kind of the effects of it? like i know that there's a big interaction or i believe there's a big interaction between like the mussels and the the gobies and and things like that what are some of the like you know big picture effects of the goby um invasion
1: how many hours was this podcast (laughs) (laughs) well one of the things that we, and I would say, I would credit Dave Jude and his colleagues at University of Michigan with this, was that a major part of the diet is is the muscles that invaded, really, just a few years before that, or maybe at the same time. Who knows? The gobies don't need muscles to, to, to survive, but they've got, um, okay, certain groups of fish have what we call two jaws. There's what we call the oral jaws. And then there's jaws in the throat. And the jaws in the throat of the gobies, uh, they have molar teeth. And they're, those are for cr- crushing things like clams. And zebra mussels, quagga mussels are from the same area. So that's naturally part of the diet. So actually one of the first things we did when, when we uh, found the gobies at Calumet Harbor, and it was easier to do it at Calumet Harbor than other locations, uh, was documented uh, the impact of round gobies on, on zebra mussels. So, But there's a constraint on that because the zebra mussels, and it was zebra mussels at the time, um, they're in cavities under the rock that can be so tight that a goby can't get in there. So that's the, one of the things that we documented in, in a couple of papers. Um, and something that that it's one of those things that says, like, yeah, the science is really real. Is, um, well, I've moved to Wisconsin uh, 21 years ago or so, but, and we spent time up on the Door Peninsula, which is rocky on the east side of it and has lots of gobies. They started invading about 1998 or 1999. And the people noticed, so, Up there, you had almost a decade of swimmers dealing with sharp-edged zebra mussels on the rocks Uh, and where it's sandy. You don't need shoes or anything like that, but the shells are there and your feet get cut up. So they had to start investing in in aquasauts, something to to protect the feet to go swimming. But they noticed that the zebra mussels on top of the rocks were gone when the gobies came which is actually a paper that we documented. But when you hear the local people asking you, well, oh, you work on blah, 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 on fish in the Great Lakes? So how come we had zebra mussels on the rocks and then they disappeared when the gobies came in? And I say, you should have published that before me, you fool. <laughs> <laughs>
0: This is why I'm professor and you're not. Yes,
1: I'm doing this interview. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you could be on this show right now. So what the gobies should have done, thinking about your salty blood, right? It all comes together because we have salty blood and people are cutting their feet on the zebra muscles. So the gobies could have just been following people, sucking in uh, the salt and they would pee much less, I think, if
1: they had done that. Uh, no, that would be the sea lamb race. You're totally confused. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> Different species. Uh, we'll have you on for that one another time.
1: So I wanted to ask about um, the gobies and birds. Gobies are bad for birds. Is that um, that a fact? Yeah, maybe as much of a fact as we know. And I I actually don't deal with that here, although maybe it's a problem here, but it's most noticeable around Traverse, sleeping bear dunes, uh, wash-ups of, uh, well, particularly loons, because everybody loves loons. We see, well, I see loons here, occasionally but not that often but we do see dead gulls, but we never actually worked on them, the botulism problem and i was talking to somebody yesterday about this maybe it was an email yeah yeah i actually it was with dave jude he said well so dave jude it's like every pioneering thing with round gobies is dave jude's he and his his grad student steve hensler first reported that the newly hatched scobies will go up into the water column, okay, and they get caught up and drift around, which is probably how they got sucked into ballast tanks in the first place. Right, and then then this is a paper by Dave and, and colleagues at Northwestern Michigan College, but it, it's just out. But it, it deals with um, first finding of the spawning nest of deepwater sculpins uh, in like 180 meters of water So, but there were round gobies down there. And that brings me back to your point. So they're using an unmanned submersible, what we call an ROV for the work. And I've seen these videos. Um, And the round gobies are down at 600 feet in the winter. This was last March, right around the solstice. Water temperatures, two Celsius, four degrees. Uh, I mean, sorry, 36 degrees Fahrenheit. Okay. So, going back to the Black Sea with gobies migrating offshore in the winter, yeah, well, they're going down at least 600 feet during the winter, which brings us to a whole new interesting possibilities that are totally unexplored. Um, I see this thing branching off to infinity. How many hours do you want this interview to go? <laughs> so, birds. Yeah, but but the gobies to some extent are hanging around uh, fish carcasses on the bottom. Okay. And if you, if you pull up one of those fish carcasses, man, it's the worst smell ever. People attribute the botulism to the round gobies and the current hypothesis, which might be totally correct. But we always have to consider alternatives is that they're somehow getting it through feeding on zebra mussels, quagga mussels, which are filtering out the botulism bacteria. Okay. But I would be pretty certain that these dead, awful carcasses on the bottom that the gobies are feeding on, and that's been documented, that's probably full of botulism too. Okay. And in the spring, when the gobies start moving up shallow, where the loons are gonna be foraging on them and loons can forage. There's a lot of dead fish around, okay? Uh, If you see dead aleweiss washed up, that's like a really big kill off, but we see dead aleweiss every spring. If it's not many, the gulls and terns pick them off, so you don't see them on the beach. It's when the gulls and terns are saturated, there's too much food out there that you see them on the beach. Boy, that was a long answer, wasn't it?
0: <laughs> no, it's good. So, so we're pretty sure the gobies are the pathway to dead birds. But the question is, where does the botulism, does it come from the fish carcasses or maybe the, the uh, muscles? That, that seems to be yeah. less certain. Is that kind of?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And for um, As much as I know about botulism, um, it has to be anaerobic, like no oxygen for the toxin to form. You know, inside the body of a dead carcass, or inside, well, whatever, a dead zebra mussel. If the goby eats it while it's dead, I think there's multiple possibilities here. And this really less than a year old discovery by by Dave and his colleagues, again being the first to do all this stuff. Uh, My God, they sent me an email right after they got off the water, and I'm like, this is absolutely beautiful. (laughs) It was like. I can't sleep that night. I'm so excited.
0: <laughs> Gobies are invasive, like you said, and they've been a very successful invader. Like, we're goby dogs aside. Um, on the off chance that my goby dog business doesn't, you know, take off and, and uh, become the goby dog king of Chicago. Uh, like, and from Wisconsin,
1: of, you use these and pigs for hot dogs.
0: Okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, for those of you listening, he's pointing to a picture of a cow on his shirt. The surfboard. The lake of Oh, I see the Lake Effects Surf Shop. There we go in Milwaukee. Um, yes, well, uh, assuming you see, this is why they might be limited to Chicago, but uh, assuming that I don't become the goby dog king of Chicago, um, is there are we getting rid of gobies or are they just part of the deal now? Uh, in,
1: in the lakes, you know, we have a selective toxin for sea lampreys, we have them under control, yeah, okay, oh, but that's we haven't true. gotten rid yeah. of them, yeah, and technically, a sea lamprey is not a fish, the physiology is is different you are more closely related biochemically to a round goby than a round goby is to a sea land
0: place. well that's because of the number of gobies i've eaten i think but no.
1: the best thing is to adapt to this situation and not whatever and it's i mean i mean the whole zebra mussel quagga muscle thing is is really complicated uh so for example so one of the things that was discovered uh first, and this was in Lake Erie, was that the baby smallmouth bass uh, get to just about the right size to feed on newly released from the nest, round gobies. And a baby bass that's big enough to do that gets this huge portion of its growth. And then as they grow, they're targeting the gobies. They've learned how to catch them, which is tricky and then the growth rate of the, the smallmouth bass up to catching size, um, they get to like 14 inches, which is like usually the, the catching size, uh, like a whole year earlier. So, you know, those people are really happy with the gobies. Um, otherwise, you know, it, gets, it just gets really, really complicated. And by the way, it is a sin to kill a bass Almost all bass fishermen release their bass unless they want to have a six or seven pounder on the wall.
0: there you go. I did not know it was a sin to kill a bass, but that's good to know uh,
1: <laughs> it's the, it's in the it's the eleventh commandment
0: the eleventh okay you know I'm still working on there's several that I'm still kind of working on when I do my sort of self yeah self-
1: that that was the tile that got broken yeah <laughs>
0: Uh, well, this is really fascinating um, stuff, but that's actually not why we invited you here on Teach Me About the Great Lakes uh, this this week. The reason we invite you on Teach Me About the Great Lakes is to ask two questions. And the first one is this. If you could choose to have a great donut for breakfast or a great sandwich for lunch, which one would you choose?
1: Um, great donut is a contradiction in terms. Okay. Okay. <laughs> and then two days ago, my lovely wife, and I got a sandwich at a vegetarian place and I decided to try their beet Reuben and I won't advertise the place, but I've never been satisfied with a, with a vegetarian Reuben until that.
0: There we go. No, no, go for the advertisement. Cause my next question is, is where do I go in Milwaukee to get a good sandwich? So I love a good uh, tofu or tempeh Reuben if there is one. So where, where, where should I go?
1: Oh my gosh. I, I don't know. You have to ask my wife.
0: I'll, uh, next time I speak with her, I will. So then the, the second question is this. Is there like a special place in the Great Lakes that you'd like to share with our audience? You know, we try to cultivate this sense of, you know, breadth and depth of this unique, amazing resource. And, and one way to do that is by sharing special places. So is there a place in the Great Lakes that's special to you?
1: Um, I have Too many of them. But I'll, I'll tell you one that was, like, stunning to me. And it, it's 1986. Uh, and I'm traveling to Lake Huron, and there's a submersible, man submersible program going on in the Great Lakes at the time. And the funny thing that I was using the same man submersible out in the uh, Atlantic at the same time. So I knew the capabilities of it, but I never did a dive with it on the Great Lakes, which is amusing. But one of my friends at the University of Michigan was going to be taking a submersible down in Lake Superior. And so he asked me to come over and help him set up. So I did. And it was the first time that I drove the North Shore of Lake Michigan. And then I was going to be doing a sabbatical in the fall of Woods Hole Oceanographic. And there was some talk about, well, maybe John should become a full-blown oceanographer now and give up the Great Lakes. And driving that coast, I was like, I love doing the marine work, but there's so much unknown here on the Great Lakes. And it's such a beautiful, beautiful drive along the, the shore. So I totally recommend it, at least for too many places to get out on the beach and there's nobody there and, and, and have solitude.
0: So have you ever eaten a goby? Be honest. Like when you're out there in the field, you're lonely. You pull up a goby. Maybe you're a little hungry, you know, by yourself. Nobody's looking.
1: What. Well, if you were talking to an ornithologist, would you ask them if they eat their chickadees?
0: Well, I mean, yes. If the chickadees were a goby and I were talking about goby dogs, I suppose I
1: would. <laughs> no, I actually don't like fish pretty much.
0: No, I took uh, I took marine fisheries biology. Uh, I can't remember the name of the prof, but he was a, like a deep ocean. He got an anglerfish named after him. And, and he just, or marine vertebrate. He called it whatever it was. He went over every single type of fish in the ocean and every one of you like, well, I, you know, most people say it doesn't taste good, but I fried it up and it tastes fine. And so <laughs> that's just how I envision every fish person is, you know, or there was one he said it was a little oily and I was like, oh, no, how awful must that have been? <laughs> but uh...
1: Yeah, I think, I mean, a turning point, I would I would tolerate some fish like a brook trout is fine to me and I used to eat snow until I had to pull 800 pounds of smelt out of a net one night. And I had had put a couple of ones fresh in the refrigerator, eat in the evening. And then, and it was a hot day and the things were falling apart at the end. And I put the the fresh smelt in the frying pan in the evening. And it was just the odor of all those (laughs) decaying smelt. It was too close to that odor. And I, I threw those smelt away, and I, I haven't eaten the smelt since. But I have eaten <laughs> whitefish and swordfish and a, a few other things, which are fine. But I don't go out of my way to, uh, to eat a fish. <laughs> oh, goodness
0: gracious. Well, uh, Dr. John Jansen, a professor at the School of Freshwater Sciences at the University of Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Thank you so much for coming on and teaching us all about the Great Lakes.
1: And, and the gobies. Okay. Well, thank you for having me.
0: Well, new segment in the books. (laughs) That certainly. That was fantastic. (laughs) Yes, uh, we certainly got a smart answer. I don't think it answered our question, but we answered many questions. And and I I asked a stupid question as well. So, yeah, there you go. (laughs) (laughs) The best kind of questions. Um, Yeah, everybody who works with John really likes working with him and, and talks about what an interesting guy he is. And I can I can see why. So, Reedy, is there something cool that you learned today uh, as a result of asking a stupid or less stupid question? Well, I brown goby's pee a lot. I never thought about that before. <laughs> I hadn't either. That's, uh, <laughs> I think there's a quote about that. One of, you know, one of these famous quote dudes from like the early 20th century said he would never uh, drink water because fish. And then I've only seen it with a dot, dot, dot. And pee is one thing that could go in that dot, dot, dot. There are other things. I'd never, I never. think I never bothered to look up the quote. But that is, uh, yeah, I mean, Lake Michigan is really just filled with fish pee, isn't it?
1: Yes, as you say, and various other things. Yeah,
0: <laughs> <laughs> and various, it's just data points to consider, really, just data <laughs> points to consider. <laughs> I just put um, my toes in it. That's as far yeah. as I go, so. <laughs> just, just the old toe dip. Yeah, no, that was fascinating to me. And I learned that uh, gobies are different sizes. Of course, they have different species and different niches and things like that. But this is something I suffer from, and I think a lot of people do, is you think invasive species or whatever, and you think of it as this monolith, right? And it's not necessarily. Right. Yeah. We just know the goby we know, right? Yep. <laughs> exactly. Just the goby we know. That's, but I mean, what else can you know but the goby you know, <laughs> I guess,
1: right?
0: <laughs> Teach Me About the Great Lakes is brought to you by the fine people at Illinois Indiana Sea Grant. We encourage you to check out the great work we do at iiseagrant.org. And, of course, at I-L-I-N-C-Gren on Facebook, Twitter, and other social media. But mainly Facebook and Twitter, I think. Do we have other ones? No, right? You know what? Just stick with those. Stick with those and you're good. Teaching About the Great Lakes is produced by Hope Charters, Carolyn Foley, Megan Gunn, and Reenie Miles. Ethan Chitty is our associate producer and our fixer. Our super fun podcast artwork, which one day may become a sticker, is by Joel Davenport. The show is edited by the awesome, the amazing, the incomparable Quinn Rose. And I encourage you to check out her work at aspiringrobot.com, assuming that she ever gets done editing this episode, which has plenty of work to do, thanks to me. Um, Anyway, if you have a question or comment about the show, please email it to teachmeaboutthegreatlakes at gmail.com. Leave a message on our hotline at 765-496-IISG. You can also hit us up at Twitter, teachgreatlakes. For Renee Miles, I'm Stuart Carlton. Thanks for listening and keep grating those legs. <laughs>